we've we've got to know that we're not on our own like this. I thought I was the only pile of hot mess in the corner that was going through all of this with all of these self-doubts and everything that was going on. I thought everyone else had their shit together. And I was terrified of, of asking for help. I was terrified of showing what was going on until it got to the point where I had to. And then, you know, and I think that's the point. We, why should we wait until our lives are falling apart to change something and do something differently? But so many of us do. This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 374 with guest Joanna Denton. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, Life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. I am so glad that you are here. I wanted to first say thank you to those of you who responded to the email I sent out asking for applications, for those of you who wanted to be coached for free here on the podcast. I know I haven't done one of those episodes in a minute, so I sent out that email to you and we had an overwhelming response. Thank you so much. We closed down applications temporarily so we could get through them all and choose a few of you to come on the show over the next few months. I'm really excited about that, but we will open applications back up. So if you missed that email, if you are not subscribed, super easy. You can go to yourkickasslife.com slash free, enter your email, and you will get our emails about every week that we send out so you won't miss that the next time. The other thing is, speaking of coaching, if you want to apply to work with me privately and maybe not have your episode (laughs) aired on the show, if you just want it to be private between you and me or you and my amazing lead coach, you can head on over to yourkickasslife.com slash apply and let's have a conversation. We are committed to you getting the results that you want and that you feel that you need. So the application does not obligate you in any way to sign up for coaching. It merely is the very first step that we take to make sure that we are all a good fit and that we can get you what it is that you're really hoping for. So again, that link is yourkickasslife.com slash apply. All right. You know that I have talked to you probably many times about burnout. I took an eight-month break from Instagram last year. I just posted. So last week, I'm back on the gram, if you follow me over there at Your Kick-Ass Life. And yeah, it was COVID. It was burnout. It was also book writing. I needed the least amount of distractions as possible. And I'll tell you what, it was a glorious break, but I, I missed communicating with everybody. And so I'm back on Instagram. I wanted to have an expert on to talk specifically about burnout. It is something that I think so many people struggle with, so many women struggle with, whether you are a stay-at-home mom, whether you work from home, whether you work outside of the home, whether you have children or you're child-free in a relationship, single, 
it doesn't really matter. Burnout, I think, is a, a more prevalent thing than we actually think. So I have Joanna on today. For those of you that don't know her, let me tell you a little bit about her. Joanna is a two-time TEDx speaker who has been a conference speaker for nearly 20 years, speaking on stages all around Europe as well as North America. She is a lawyer by training and was a tax consultant in big four accounting firms in both the UK and Luxembourg for 16 years. In 2014, after two burnouts in five years, Joanna decided to leave the tax world behind and change her life completely. Today, she's a speaking and executive coach for thought leaders, business executives, and entrepreneurs. Her mission in life is to break the silence around burnout at work and help her clients get back some headspace so they can get on and do what they love. She wrote A Different Truth to start a conversation about choices and help anyone who wants to take back control of their life by making different choices. So without further ado, here is Joanna. Joanna, thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I'm delighted um, to have someone with a British accent on because as as an American, and I don't speak for all Americans, but I think I can speak for a few of us, that we tend to think anyone with a British accent is very, very smart. (laughs) It just sounds so So no pressure. No pressure at all to sound smart. No pressure at all. Well, it's all good. And there'll be a bit of Northern Irish in there as well with my high now, brown guy. So, um, yes. Yes, I can tell that it's a mix. And that's why I was asking you, you know, where are you from and where are you living? And, and it's embarrassing to say every once in a while, I can't tell the difference between Australian, Irish, Scottish, or English. So sorry. Well, I mean, to be fair, I could probably tell a Texan, but I couldn't tell a Connecticut from uh, Wisconsin. So I think, you know, you're in the country, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It sounds American and sometimes even the Canadian, I get mixed up as well. So you know, I think, yes. I think okay, yeah. I can see <laughs> the similarities. Well, we're talking about a topic that is, I think, very relevant in not just being in a global pandemic, you know, even before COVID happened, but especially now, and that is about burnout and about overwhelm. And I am no stranger to burnout. I've been candid about it here on the show and, you know, what, what it actually looked like in my life as well as how I try to remedy it. So I want to start with just talking about like, why is it so difficult, do you think, for leaders to talk about burnout and what can we do to make that easier? Well, I think there, I think there are a few reasons why it's difficult for leaders to talk about it. And I mean, would it help maybe to give a little bit of my background as to my experience with burnout and why it was difficult for me to talk about it? Yeah, perfect. So, um, I studied law, did a couple of law degrees, um, started work in 1998 in international accounting firms. And by 2014, I was 16 years into this international career working in tax, and I was actually living in Luxembourg. And on the face of it, I was some definition of success. You know, I was a go-to person for my clients, for my teams. I was speaking on stages all around Europe and, and in North America. But that definition of success, if you like, it hit a very different reality of working stupid long hours, um, feeling I could never ask for help, and my life was slowly falling apart. And by February 2014, I was bang in the middle of my second burnout in five years. I didn't want to wash, didn't want to eat, didn't want to get dressed, and I sure as hell didn't want to tell anyone what I was going through. 
because I thought that would be a sign of weakness. I thought yeah. that would... Well, I want to stop you for yeah. a second, Joanna. I want to stop you because that's... I love that you're talking about what your symptoms look like. And on the show, we've been talking a little bit more about depression. And can you, can you tell us before you continue with your story? Cause I want to hear the whole mm. thing, but what is, how can someone tell the difference or do they need to have a professional help them between depression and burnout? Or is there a lot of overlap? I think there's a, there's a certain amount of overlap. I mean, if we think about, okay, yep. so people started first, first started talking about burnout back in the seventies, primarily around the medical professions. And, um, for the next number of decades, there's been a lot of debate as to what is burnout? Is it an illness? Does it even exist? And it was only back in 2019, the World Health Organization defined burnout as a syndrome relating to chronic workplace stress that hasn't been properly managed. And mm-hmm. it kind of it goes on to talk about three key elements. There's that element of energy depletion, there's a negativity and cynicism and distance from your work, and then there's this reduced prefer, um, professional performance. Now, what's interesting about that definition is, first of all, it's not defined as an illness. And secondly, within the whole context of it, what it suggests is it's not just related to the individual themselves, but also the environment and the the situation that they're in. As compared to depression, which I understand is defined as an illness, I think there are there are certainly overlaps in some of the in some of the symptoms. And it's one of those things that I'm not a medical professional, and I think probably the advice that I would always give when I'm working with clients or, or talking to people who are going through these things is these are the types of things that it looks like. These are the types of phases you go through. But to really get a, a proper diagnosis, it's probably best to be talking to a medical professional because what might work for burnout, send some, for example, send someone away for a two-week break. If someone is depressed and having suicidal thoughts, having a two-week break from everybody else may not be the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. So okay. I think they're I, I think they're kind of overlapping elements. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, completely. And and my experience with it was was similar to yours. And when I talked to my therapist about it and and asked her, well, what how do I know that this is burnout? And she said, untreated burnout will turn into depression. Mm-hmm. And my doctor, my general practitioner confirmed that. So that's where, that's how I understood it. Yeah. And um, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I think it does. And I think one of the other things that's important about it is it's not from one day to the next. You know, there's that kind of, I typically like to think of it as, you know, different phases. You know, you've got the honeymoon phase. You start this new job, this new project, this new responsibility. You're super excited about it. You want to show how good you are. Maybe you have a couple of, you know, setbacks. And so you work even harder to prove your value. Then, then on the onset of stress, if you like, you start to, you can't focus as much, you're getting irritable, but it's, you know, it's everyday stress, you know, you can, you can have stressful days and then uh, things, things change. But if it doesn't, that can then lead to that chronic state where it's, you know, heightened of emotions. Maybe you're, you're tired, you're starting to tie up your value into the work. Maybe things are coming up for you, um, things that are going wrong. And instead of saying, oh, well, I'm exhausted and I need some help here, you start, you're kind of immediately blaming it. Oh, my colleague is a is an asshole or my boss doesn't understand me or my team never do anything. And then if that's not handled, then you kind of come into this, this burnout, this feelings of, of isolation, of, of emptiness that maybe you're filling with alcohol or chocolate or spending money or, or those sort of things. And I think 
That's a, for me, that's incredibly interesting insofar as it suggests that we can intervene at an earlier date before someone crashes and burns. But that presupposes that you actually know what's going on. And to come back to that initial question, why is it difficult for leaders? I think there are a number of reasons. And one of them can be that you don't actually know that anything's amiss. You just think, right. you know, you're working right. in corporate, you're working this this fancy pants job and and um, you've got lots of responsibility. It's normal that you're tired. Yeah. You know, you, yeah. you chose... It kind of just comes with the territory. It comes with the territory. Well, you chose this job, Joe. Um, get on with it. You know, that sort of thing. So yeah. you're kind of... So is that how, is that how you felt? Cause so, so take us back to your story before I, before I cut you off. Well, very much so. Um, I think that... I mean, along the way, a number of things had kind of, you know, the universe had been sending me a whole bunch of signs. I remember, for example, my 35th birthday, 5 a.m. on my 35th birthday, I'm just getting in from work. And because I've been working on... Wait, <laughs> you mean you worked all the way until until the middle of the or the early morning hours and then went on home that at On that particular birthday, absolutely. Oh and, you know, I've been... Well, the things... Because I was based in Luxembourg, but I worked a lot with West Coast clients. So um, oh, okay. for a long period of time during my career, I would work with my, on my European clients, if you like, nine to five, but then at five o'clock, the West Coast wakes up. Um, so oh, for certain projects, for a certain length of time, there would be maybe weeks or months that I would be working, not necessarily, not to five o'clock every single morning, but there would be times I'd be going home at midnight, I'd be still maybe coming home and, you know, I'd finish an email, pack up my stuff, come home, then open up my open up my computer again and recheck the email. You know, are the semicolons in the right place? Are the bullet points aligned up? You know, when you're so exhausted Mm -hmm. that that actually, you think that that matters. So for a very long time, Mm -hmm. I was working very long hours. And as I say, not not till five o'clock every single morning, but 12, 14 hour days. And I remember getting home 5 a.m. I should have been sleeping, but instead I was on the phone to my ex-boyfriend opening the present that my parents had sent me for my birthday. And I actually have it here up behind my desk. It was a signed picture of me and my sister from when I was 15. So 15 years old, my life ahead of me. And there I am at 5 a.m. on my 35th birthday, looking at that picture, thinking, aha, 20 years later, the sum of my life is work. Mm -hmm. And there was this kind of, this realization of I'm tired, I've had enough of this. And then straight away behind it yeah but this is normal you don't have a choice joe if you want to be professional if you want to be dedicated these are the hours you have to do so the very next day instead of having a rest instead of doing whatever else i went back to work but i continued the same way and and that was back in in 2007 and it took a couple of years before the first burnout um and along the way you know, that just, you know, the, the panic attack started, the anxiety, the OCD. I mm-hmm. went off for a month, came back after the first burnout, straight back into it the same way, didn't change a single thing. And five years later, I was I was back there again. And I think it was this story, one of the stories I was telling myself is you don't have a choice. You know, you're single, yeah. um, you've got two cats, but you don't have a family or anything like that. At least you've got this great job and would it sound well I don't think it will sound weird there's an element that I I believed that my entire value of me as a human being was tied up in the fact that I had this job title of 
director in the tax department of one of the big four companies. Yeah. I don't think that sounds weird at all. I think that that's more common than we would like yeah, to know. Completely. And I've worked I've worked with women who you know, they kind of have this I mean, essentially it's a bit of a breakdown and whether it's mental, emotional, whatever it is, and they come to work with me and that you know, they they're in their 30s or 40s or sometimes 50s and they have they identify solely on their productivity, their success in in their work. You know, sometimes they have children, sometimes they don't. And you know, I've I've worked with clients too. I want to I want to kind of point to something that you said that I think is so important is that you were getting these signs from the universe, mm-hmm. kind of tapping you on the shoulder and telling you that something was wrong, and you ignored some of them, and then you got it. You got that big one in form of that that gift, but. I've, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of one client I had, I don't know, five or six years ago, and she was a single mom and she was climbing the ladder at her corporate job, making a lot of money and having a lot of success financially corp, you know, in this job. And she was actually, she was in burnout and I was very honest and candid with her and said, you can't, you can't keep this up. You, you, you have to do something. And she, I mean, it was, it was so much like, I have built this lifestyle for my daughter and, you know, prove to my parents that I can do this and prove to my ex-husband that I can do it without him. I can't step back. I can't, you know, take a leave of absence. What will, what will people say? So I, I could tell her that until I was blue in the face and it didn't matter. Like she had to, and I think this is with everyone. I would be the same way. She had to do her, take the own, her own lessons so let this be a um, a sign from the universe for someone listening. <laughs> this this conversation. Yeah. It's so true, and I think what's because you know I talked about the picture. The picture wasn't enough. It took it actually mm-hmm. took the death by suicide of a colleague for me to wise up and smell the coffee. Um, oh my gosh! And what has been really interesting talking to other people is that very often similar story to the one that you you've just um, you just told. Um, almost as though it wasn't enough that they were falling sick themselves because in their minds, they weren't important enough to be able to look after. It had to take something for somebody else. For example, one friend who's, uh, who had a friend who was a, he was a policeman on the streets of Luxembourg. He was stabbed to death. She had a wake up call. Someone else, she um, was driving very, very slowly on a motorbike to her motorbike exam and she tipped the bike over and then, you know, and, and you know, she had an accident and then her body just broke down and she was off for 18 months. Mm-hmm. And a third one, it was the day that she realized she was so exhausted. She couldn't remember how to make spaghetti bolognese for the kids. That's what it was that woke oh her up. And I think that's, that's something that I find incredible now to look at and think, well, how can you be so bloody stupid? I mean, the universe is sending you those things, but for me, I was a floating head. My body's sole purpose until until I started to unpack all of this was to get my head from one meeting to the next. So I was just living up there and couldn't see, couldn't hear what my body was telling me because I was just stuffing it down. And I can tell you now I can hear every single thing that my body says. I mean, it screams blue murder at me most of the time now. But at the time I couldn't, I couldn't hear it. And I think that's what that goes right to what you're saying about your about your client. We need to make we need to see it for ourselves. And what mm-hmm. is 
and, and part of part of what I want to do by talking about this in so publicly and openly about it is we've we've got to know that we're not on our own like this. I thought I was the only pile of hot mess in the corner that was going through all of this with all of these self-doubts and everything that was going on. I thought everyone else had their shit together. And I was terrified of of asking for help. I was terrified of showing what was going on. Um until it got to the point where I had to. And then, you know, and I think that's the point we why should we wait until our lives are falling apart? to change something and do something differently. But so many of us do. I, I thought you were going to say, you know, I don't know if it's just part of the human experience. I mean, that's my, my question too. Like I, I had a, I had a falling apart moment that was um, more in terms of romantic relationships. And, and I tell my story as a cautionary tale to say, and it was the same. I wasn't listening to my intuition. Like you don't have to wait until these incredibly egregious life-changing moments you know, where you're in the hospital for 18 months mm-hmm. or to change your life. But I don't, I don't know. I, I think the jury's still out on this. What do you think? I, I think that some people just learn that way and that's part of their journey. Well, I think part, I mean, for me, what I, what I've kind of learned looking back is that I was telling myself a bunch of stories about how life was and what mm-hmm. I should expect from it and what I, you know, what my role was in that. And, you know, some of the stories were around if, if I want to be professional and everything else, then I have to do long hours. It didn't matter what the quality yeah. of those hours was, but it was the quantity. And that was a story I had. I had a story about serving others means sacrificing myself. I couldn't understand why right. in the airplane they talked about putting your own mask on before your kids. And I'm thinking, well, surely that's counterintuitive. Of course, you're going to ask help your kids. I didn't get it because I had mm-hmm. these stories ingrained. And I think we have we that's the thing that that I think is important to start to unpack and 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 to see how we we learn these stories for survival I mean those stories form how we get through our young years and and then we go on to reinforce them at school at university and in life and it's very Mm -hmm. often it's those stories that those stories that become so ingrained that we think it's the truth when in fact it's not necessarily it's not. And, you know, this is something I talk about in my my next book that's coming out is that these are stories that are handed to us. And, and I, I don't think it's very common where people are implicitly told at a young age, your worth is wrapped up in your productivity and what job you get. No, 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 no. But we're conditioned and socialized. And I, I think that this is true for men too. It just looks different. Yeah. That our value is wrapped up in our productivity in our success, in our finances. And when you live in a capitalistic, you know, culture and that's based on a meritocracy, (laughs) that's how it works. And it's, it's that unlearning has been for me personally. And it sounds like for you too, like PhD level learning slash unlearning that that's what's important. Cause you said such an important word this is our survival and it's and it's many times unconscious that we think in order to survive we have to do x y and z and then the big question becomes but at what cost very much so and I, and i think that now i can see where some of those stories have come when i look at the dynamics within the family you know within within the country those come down generations and and part of it is about breaking that cycle i think i mean don't get me wrong my parents, for example, would never have said to me, your worth will be based on your product- productivity. 
what they said to me was, if you do your best, we can't ask for more. So even if you, uh, even if you fail your exams, if you've done your best, then that's enough. What I heard was, you need to be the best. Now those are two very, very different things. Um, but I think there was that aspect of, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, I left school. I went abroad for a year. I did a law degree in English and French law. Then I did a second law degree in European business law. And then I went to law school. Um, and all along the way, it was like, you need to get the best grades to get the best jobs. I started working at Arthur Anderson, which at the time was was a big deal to be working for Anderson's. You know, all of those sort of things. And it was always aspiring to be, to get the best opportunities and, and, and to do that. And then along the way, it gets wrapped up and you start to believe that those are part of your values and you start to believe that that's, the most important thing in your existence and and that that expresses itself in different ways other people have stories that for them you know maybe as a woman for them to be successful they have to be married by the age of 21 and have a couple of kids by the age of 25 you know other people might think that the only way to be happy is to have the big car the big house and the big holiday even if they're doing a job that sucks their soul dry all of those different things kind of come up and, and and this is part again of what makes it so difficult to see that anything's going on because it's just so ingrained as the truth that we don't know it's a story. We just know we're trying to get through the day and do what we believe is what we're meant to do. And I think part of it yeah. becomes kind of becoming aware of the fact that those are stories and noticing them and then giving yourself a break because, you know, You've, I mean, I got through 40 odd years before I started seeing that these were stories. And, you know, part of it was giving, you know, having a bit of self-compassion and, and not beating myself up about it. And, and when mm -hmm. you can start to notice them, then you can start to challenge and maybe change them. But if you don't even know they're there in the first place, you know, you're a bit stymied really. I'm interrupting this conversation to bring you a few words from one of our sponsors. One thing I've been focusing on a lot over the last couple of years is how to unload some of the mental labor it takes just to be an adult who eats. Deciding on meals, making a shopping list, doing the shopping, prepping the food, and then cooking are several things I needed help with. So my husband, Jason, and I turned to Green Chef. Green Chef is the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company. Enjoy clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness. My new favorite of theirs is their Thai sweet chili chicken thighs. I love to just say that. Thai sweet chili chicken thighs. Green Chef is the most sustainable meal kit, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box, so you can feel great about what you're eating as well as how it got to your table. Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, so go to greenchef.com slash kickass90 and use code kickass90 to get $90 off including free shipping. That's greenchef.com slash kickass90. Use code kickass90 to get $90 off, including free shipping. And thank you for supporting our sponsors because that in turn supports this show.
Personally, I love a good, beautiful, classic jewelry design. That's why I'm currently obsessed with Ana Luisa's gorgeous pieces. I recently ordered their gold double hoop earrings and I wear them every day. So a few of the many reasons I love their jewelry, they have exceptional quality, long lasting pieces crafted with care from the best metals. And if you have sensitive skin and ears like me, you'll appreciate that. They offer a 365 day warranty to replace or refund any piece that doesn't meet your expectations. They have fair prices, jewelry starting at just $39 and they're carbon neutral. They offset 100% of their carbon emissions, starting with the sourcing of their raw materials all the way to the disposal of their pieces. Go to analuisa.com slash kickass. That's A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash kickass. Treat yourself and your loved ones with a unique gift and use my code kickass to get 10% off. I absolutely recommend them. They are a great brand making beautiful, sustainable jewelry. So go check out A-N-A-L-U-I-S-A dot com slash kickass and make sure you use code kickass to get 10% off your entire purchase. And thank you for supporting our sponsors because that in turn supports this show. And now back to the conversation. I'm curious to kind of jump fast forward. How has your life improved as a result of your burnouts? There have been a lot of realizations as to what I was doing. I mean, so I went through the second, I went through the second burnout in 2014, decided, you know, Peter's death and realizing that he felt he couldn't ask for help. And I was sitting there thinking I couldn't ask for help. That spurred me to pick up the phone and ask for help. So I was able to unpack a lot of these. So I left tax back in 2014, about six months after I had gone through this. And I started working as a coach first in-house. And then I left to set up my own business. So in a lot of ways, being able to get out of that environment, you know, the the burnout really, it gave me a fire up my ass to leave tax and do Mm -hmm. something completely different um, that there wasn't tax wasn't the be all and end all of life and I I know that's a controversial statement but I'll put it out there anyway there is more to life than tax and uh, (laughs) that's blasphemy Joanna (laughs) thank goodness me thankfully I'm over here in Belfast and my former colleagues can't hear me um but I think it was about you know deciding what was important in my life again and and realizing that it was more about the relationships it was more about it was no longer about being validated by what everybody else thought. You know, my my initial, you know, my, my definition of a kick-ass life at then, before the burnouts, was whatever everybody else tells me it is. You know, if I'm mm. if I'm doing a good job, they'll tell me I'm doing a good job. Okay, that must mean I've got a kick-ass life. What I've learned is that it's up to me to define that myself. Um, and yeah. that that's now defined by having an impact, by being close to my my friends and family and having those relationships, it's defined about, you know, making a difference and talking about burnout and mental health so that other people don't have to go through this the way that you and I went through it. And I think in that respect, it's it's I'm a lot more chilled out. I'm a lot more I've realized I realized just how scared I was of everything in the past. You know, mm-hmm. riddled with all of these self-doubts and second guessing myself and because I refused to admit that I was scared because if I admitted that I was scared then that meant that I was weak I would squash down all of this fear and I would squash down all of the frustrations I had about being a woman in a very um, male-dominated area 
and mm. squash all of those emotions down, thinking, oh, well, if I squash it down, I don't see you, you don't exist. Um, hell no, that started, as you can imagine, started leaking out everywhere into the OCD, the panic attacks. You know, I had checklists to leave the apartment. I would video the floor, that this is going to sound bonkers. If I was working late um, at the office and I would leave the office, my office to go down into the car park, I would video the floor from my office all the way along the corridor, out onto the landing, into the lift, down the four flights of stairs, out of the, the lift in the, in, the car, in the car park, all the way to my car, so I could watch it back and confirm that I hadn't dropped anything. And then I would proceed to drive around the car park for 10 minutes to double check I hadn't left anything on the floor before I would take my oh courage in two hands to yeah. leave the car park. You know, this, this sort of thing, which is just, it was because of the fatigue. It was because of the, you know, all of this fear that I wasn't expressing and I wasn't naming that was kind of seeping out like that. But of course, as far as everyone else was concerned, I had my shit together. I knew what I was doing. I was top of my game, blah, de, blah, de, blah. And I wasn't letting any of them see behind that. So now I let, see, I, I let people see that. I let, or at least I, I admit to myself, I'm, a, I'm nervous about this thing that's coming up. I'm worrying about that thing. But that's just because I give, I give a shit about it. But I'm not going to let yeah. that worry and fear manage mm-hmm. me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I think right. I think in that That's respect, the human experience. I mean, I think in that respect, my life is better because I can name the fear and do something about it rather than squash it and have it come and beat the crap out of me when I'm not looking. Yeah, and take over your life in other ways, yeah. and have you try to manage that fear by videotaping, you know, your your path? And absolutely. That's I, I really appreciate you talking about the the nuanced symptoms because. You know, I, I'm a true believer that our our brains and our bodies are always trying to take care of us. And when you fall into a place like that where you're where you're hurting, um, that's what our our brains and our bodies do. You know, make you tell you that the path that you need to get comfort is to videotape your entire path to make sure you didn't. Mm. I mean, like in in a strange way, that sounds reasonable. You know, (laughs) as someone, we were talking to someone who, you know, has OCD tendencies, has had panic disorder. Like I I understand in other words. Yeah. I understand. I've been in that place where that, that sounds reasonable. Completely. And safe. And safe. And safe. Absolutely. I mean, what I'm learning now, I mean, I do, um, I've been doing some work on DBT, dialectical behavior therapy and studying it. And, and I do a podcast. um, I do a a Facebook live every week. That's becoming a podcast. to launch soon with a with a colleague based in Oakland, um, Joan JJ Go Mental, and we talk about these things. And you know, part of it is about normalizing the conversations. And part of the work that I've had to do on the DBT is to realize that actually those control aspects, it's almost like a self medication. So it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't actually mm-hmm. fix the problem. It almost makes it worse and enables myself to do even more so I'm, I'm having you know I've had to learn to lean into it you know when I've when I felt like that because there's times it will you know some, sometimes the OCD stuff will come back um briefly and you know if I'm sometimes if I'm tired and I'm leaving the house to go around to my parents and I'm checking the, the, the door two or three times but I'm not going back into the house the way I used to before I mean I, I you know 
way back 10 years ago, I had entire checklists to leave the apartment in the morning of every single wall plug in the apartment you know so you know in one room there before of them well I would kind of write down well there's the one beside the radiator there's one beside the bed there's one just at the door okay I've ticked that one I've, I've checked that one I've checked that one so mm-hmm. nowhere near like that but I think it's a lot of these things one of the other things that I've learned is that I believe that as soon as I knew about this stuff like I learned about the inner critic when I read Tara Moore playing big Mm-hmm. It changed my life. Oh my God, there's such a thing as the inner critic. Yeah. And I then thought, brilliant. I know the inner critic, Brainy Bob, the boring barrister. I know who he is. I know what he's there for. Fantastic. He's going to go away now. I will never see him again. Mm. Bullshit. You know, I think when you start. Sorry, Joanne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For a fleeting moment. You got to hope. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But that's a that's a bit I, I want to say like that's a big part of I I remember the moment that I learned about the inner critic. I was sitting in a conference room in my coach training in 2007 and I was just looking around the room like, "Oh my gosh, are you guys listening to this?" Like, how did I not know <laughs> my this? My mind was blown. How did I not know this? How did I go all those years without knowing? And that is um only half the battle. You know, the the battle that counts the most is and I don't like I don't like to use word metaphors, but yeah, the work that matters is the consistent Absolutely. managing. Absolutely. Same thing with Brene Brown. I remember very clearly in a training room in a hotel in a forest in Luxembourg, the facilitator puts on Brene Brown's um, vulnerability TED Talk. Mm-hmm. And I'm there thinking, it's only taken me 42 years for someone to tell me I don't need to be perfect. I mean, what the fuck is that? Yeah. Excuse my French. Yeah, I want to put that that TED talk in the show notes as well as that Facebook Live that you that you're doing with with your colleague. Mm. And I want to I want to ask you about your book, and it's called The Different Truth. Yeah. So, how did I'm curious where that title came from? Well, A Different Truth is it's this kind of idea of you know all of these all of these stories we tell ourselves that become so ingrained that it becomes the truth. And the book is about a leap of faith that perhaps is a different truth out there. So the subtitle is reject the stories that are are killing your career and start to make choices that are better for you. So it's really around five core areas about stories, about places we might have stories. For example, first one is about thrive. So it's the stories we tell ourselves about how we have to put everyone else first and we don't look after ourselves. You know, self-care is for lazy, unprofessional Californian hippies. I mean, that sort of story. Um, what can I say? Um, the second one is around the fear, you know, rewiring out of the fear. So the stories that we're not good enough and we've only got one shot at it. The third one's about community. I'm the only one in this. No one else can help me. The fourth one is about telling your story. You know, it should be enough that I've done a good job. I don't need to tell anyone I want a promotion, that kind of story. And then the fifth one is around connecting mm-hmm. around your work. So I work a lot with, on my speak on the speaking side of my business, I work a lot of with a lot of geeks who speak, you talk about really, really difficult subjects. So it's the stories that we have about my subject is so important. If I dumb it down, it loses the impact. So it's really about saying, here are some examples of stories that we tell ourselves in our career, in our in our lives. What if we were to take a leap of faith that it wasn't the only story and that there was a different way of doing it? How can we then step into that new truth? So for example, if we talk about a story that we have that we're the only one that can 
do this stuff that um, I have to do it all by myself. I can't ask for help. If we took the leap of faith that we could ask for help, okay, well, how can we go about building our community? How can we go about showing other people who we really are and then seeing them for who they really are as well and making those connections and so on? So it's meant to be a very kind of hands-on, practical, here are some exercises. If you've only got five minutes, here's a five-minute exercise. But if you've got longer time, here are three exercises for each of them that might take half an hour, might take four weeks. And drawing from all of the reading that I've done over these last years from Brene Brown, Tara Moore, Carol Dweck, all of these sort of people, bringing them together into one place. Yes, those are some of my favorite people. I, I love that. And I, I want to circle back to something that you said and sort of underscore it about the topic of asking for help. And, and we have spent a little bit of time there, but I just, I want to reiterate um, how difficult that can be for some mm. people still. You know, even as self-aware as a lot of the people are that listen to this show, the, you know, the the amount of personal development that they have consumed and learned and and practiced, I am a true believer that asking for help is still, it sort of ebbs and flows as, you know, the degree of difficulty. Personally, even, you know, and I am someone who lives and breathes personal development, personally and professionally. And, you know, I, I had, um, Mia Hempstead was a guest on my show not too long ago, and and we both shared our stories about depression and some suicidal ideation. And I had never shared that on the show before. And I was still a little bit, um, worried to tell the story mm. because, and I remember when it happened sitting in my office and crying and thinking, if I tell like, this is, this is like the, the capital T capital W the worst, mm -hmm. the worst in terms of people are going to really worry about me and kind of give me the side eye and think, okay, this woman has lost her mind. She is not to be trusted. That's what I was worried yeah. about. That even my husband might think that, that I he would view me as like unfit to be a mother. That and I and I think that that is a part of that is part of the head trash. You know, that oh, happens. Hell yes. That's where how shame survives is by telling us that it is not a good idea to tell our story and to speak it even to people we trust mm -hmm. because it is shameful. We're going to be rejected. We're going to be abandoned and we might die. And I don't mean that as an exaggeration. No, 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 I no, no, no. I mean, it's part of our brain tells completely. us. Oh, hell yeah. It was, it was, it was really scary. And I did it. The first person I broke down to and told is I, I FaceTimed my best friend. She knew it was an emergency because if we call or FaceTime each other, it's like, you better pick up the phone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But it's not a text. And I just word vomited everything. And I'm, I'm so glad that I did. And it really, it, I do think that that accelerated my getting help as well as feeling better and getting better. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, oh my God. Yeah. And it's, and it's so, I mean, again, the, the burnouts, that, that was the, the thing for me. I, I, you know, I'm the one that people come to for help. I'm not the one that goes right. to anybody else for help. If I start doing that, then what are they going to think of me? Oh, my goodness, yes. And I, and I think this was the thing with Peter's death because he was he he died suddenly at the age of 67. And by that stage, I'd been super glued to the sofa for a couple of weeks, but I just had to be at the memorial service because he was, he was a gentleman and he was a gentle man. And I knew I had to be there. And what I discovered during the service was that he hadn't, he hadn't died with a heart attack. He'd actually 
he'd spent the weekend with friends, laughing and joking, going to the movies, going to the jazz aperitif in the in the Abbey. And then on Monday morning, he got up, he went to the Red Bridge in, in Luxembourg and he jumped. And oh gosh. what his friends, what really, really struck me was his friends, you know, doing the eulogies, talking about the black dog, talking about the depression that he'd had for so long, but also saying, if he had told us, we'd have been there. But he didn't tell us. And I think, I mean, I, I, I haven't been in, in, Peter's, in Peter's head, but what I understood from that is he believed that he couldn't ask for help, that no matter how close mm-hmm. these friends were, no matter how long he had known them, he felt that he couldn't ask them for help. And as I came out of the memorial service, got back in the car, sitting outside the, the, the cemetery, the tears came because this was a mirror on my life. Now, I've never had suicidal thoughts, but the mirror on my life was this thought that I couldn't ask for help and this pain at the very thought of it. And I remember I remember having to take my courage in two hands and pick up the phone. And I have to, and I've never, I've never said this in public before, but the first person I rang said, well, that's why I don't approve of anybody who commits suicide. They're selfish and I'm busy. Um, so I had to mm-hmm. pick up the phone a second time. And to be fair, I, I caught him on a bad day. I think it, it triggered a lot of things because of, um, a friend and colleague of his had, had committed suicide. And, and so he, there was, he was triggered for a number of reasons, but I rang, I then spoke to a second person who basically said I'm here and I mm-hmm. I went round to her place when her when her toddler got out of out of nursery we picked him up and then she came to my house just so that I was I didn't have to sleep in the apartment by myself and that's when it started and that's when my friends they put down their hands and they pulled me back up from the, the bottom of this hole um and that and that changed everything. That changed everything. Speaking the words, and I think, as you say, you know, part of the, the whole thing around shame is that it becomes even more so because we don't mention its name. When we do mention its name, and it sees the light, then we can handle it so much better. Mm-hmm. But I, I do honestly believe that it doesn't matter how many books that we read. It's very good. You know, you've got to ask for help. People are going to be there. Just reach out and be vulnerable. When you're in that mindset, it's shit scary. And it's all very well so-and-so over there in wherever they are in their research, in their research labs, writing about vulnerability and whatever else. They have no idea what my life is like. But I think we've got to make the decision for ourselves to reach out. And sometimes it just takes those five seconds of courage. Just those five mm-hmm. seconds of courage to pick up the phone and trust that someone will be there, and that's why, you know, my ten, in my in my TEDx talks and and in the book, I don't talk about that first phone call because in some ways, that's okay. The important thing is I had the second phone call and she picked up the phone and she was there, and I think yeah. that's the point. They are there. The people that really care for us and see us. They're there, um, and I think that's what we've got to—that's what we've got to hold on to. My parents were always there, but they were in a different country, and there would be mm-hmm. there would be so much that I didn't tell them over the phone because what what are they going to do? They're in a different country. Yeah. Um, 
But I think that's I think that's what we've got to hold on to. And I think perhaps one of the biggest lessons coming back from the burnout and one of the biggest reasons why my life is better is because I now believe that to be true. That when I need help, someone will be there. I am not alone. And similarly, the people listening today, every single one out there needs to know and needs to believe in the their soul that they already do but they've just got so much noise going on that they can't hear it anymore when they do reach out there will be someone there and all they've got to do is take that step yeah oh thank you for that I want to end on that that was such a beautiful speech (laughs) (laughs) sermon um I I appreciate you and telling your story and and your your expertise on this and um the book is the different truth. Can you tell us the subtitle again? Yes, it's. She says it's reject the truths that are killing your career and start to make choices that are better for you. So it's it's beautiful. Published on Amazon, um, so we can get that in, in paperback or hardback. Okay, amazing. JoannaDenton.com. We'll put all those links into the show notes as well as as your TEDx talks. Thank you so much for being here. Before we close up, is there anything that you are wanting to say that you want to circle back to or make sure that you that you leave um, having said it? And also tell people where they can find you. Well, where they can find me is um, JoannaDenton.com. I'm also on Instagram if you want pictures of the dog that I'm dog sitting. Um. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Oh, it's ridiculous. I've been dog sitting for six weeks. I have two cats. And it's, it's, if you want a lesson, listeners, if you want a lesson in mindfulness, borrow a dog. You know, the number of times you're not super attached to it. Oh like, I feel like six weeks is oh, like, okay, oh my goodness I'm me, I'm, my heart is going to break when she leaves. But the whole thing is yeah. that she has, um, I'm used to dogs that bark at you if, if they need to go to the bathroom. This one just looks at you. So for the first couple of weeks, every time she'd look at me, I'd think, oh, she's just looking at me longingly because she loves me. No, she needs a pee, Joe. Get off your ass and let her out the back door. Anyway, um, so they can find me on, on my website, on Facebook. Um, the Facebook Lives go out every every Monday as of February. They've been going out every Saturday before the podcast is coming. Um, so, yes. Amazing. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time and listeners. I appreciate your time as well. You know how grateful I am for that. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye everyone. Thank you for listening to your Kick-Ass Life podcast. If you'd like some extra support, we would love to see how we can help you. You can apply for private coaching by simply texting the word apply to 33777 and the link will be sent to you.